Welcome to The Rock's podcast. The motto for 2 Corinthians is, when I am weak, then I am strong. The Holy Spirit is using the Apostle Paul's troubles to show us that God is faithful, not only to see us through, but to use our difficulties in powerful ways. Now let's join Pastor Ross with another message from the series entitled, Strength Through Weakness. Heavenly Father, thank you for your love. Thank you for being here with us. Thank you for receiving us as we are, Lord, in whatever condition you find us in, Lord, you love us and you're changing us as we yield our will to your good will. So help us do that tonight as we're instructed with your wisdom, as we're corrected, as we're inspired, as the word of God, living word of God, breathing, sent from God, does its work in our hearts and lives. In Christ's name, amen. Well, who here likes to be criticized? All right, nobody's raising their hands. Now, uh, the definition of to criticize is to speak about the perceived faults of someone in a disapproving way. All right, so it's an unpleasant thing indeed. Now, the word perceived there is pretty important. Because oftentimes a critical person with a critical mouth um, belongs to a person with a chip on their shoulder and they have an axe to grind and there's an ulterior motive uh, for those negative remarks. They tend to be self-serving, not constructive, and so the criticism really is invalid. Uh, because it comes from a self-absorbed or insecure or envious uh, a person, you know, the person who has a log hanging out of their eye and they want to help you with the speck of dust in yours. And so there's a whole lot of that going on in a place called Corinth there in the first century. And uh, such is the most unpleasant experience for who? For the Apostle Paul. Great man of God that he was, the writer of 13 New Testament books, the planter of at least 20 New Testament churches, and not even the Apostle Paul is, a, is above and beyond uh, the critical mouths of even those who know him best and love him most. Um, let me refresh your memory of what's going on because it's from that unjust criticism that 2 Corinthians is born because he's answering those criticisms. Normally, I think biblically, uh, petty kinds of criticisms, uh, we should probably ignore and not make a deal, big deal over them. But, you know, we have to have the discernment to know wh what on which hill that the battle needs to happen. You know, we say, pick the hill that you want to die on. You know, well, he wants to die on this hill because the criticism is coming against him. And if it's true, then the credibility of the gospel and the health of the churches there in um, the, the Roman Empire are going to be uh, at risk. 
And so he is going to answer back. And thus we have uh, 2 Corinthians. Let me refresh your memory of how it all went down. The uh, Apostle Paul with his team planted and pastored a church in Corinth for, for about two years. Six years previous to this letter. All right? So that, that you can find in Acts 18 if you're interested. Uh, Paul travels a lot after those two years of planting and pastoring that church that he founded. And he leaves it to men like Titus, younger men, novice kind of guys. And, and so some bullies, these false teachers, uh, wannabe pastors from Jerusalem came in. And the word has infiltrated the congregation uh, there in Greece. And they wanted to take over uh, the church. They wanted to steal away the congregation from Pastor Paul so that they could step into leadership and enjoy all the benefits without any of the work. And on top of everything else, they had bad motives and erroneous teaching. They were completely not even Christians. They were evil people, as we'll come to find out once again tonight. And so the task, their task was to undermine the congregation's trust and love for their founding pastor. Um, uh, And sort of the way the devil helps men hinder the work of God is by criticism. So they were criticizing his appearance and his demeanor as unimpressive. They criticized his speaking ability as weak. Uh, They criticized his handling of finances and how he handled church discipline uh, as um, manipulative and controlling and deceptive. And they were saying that he had self-serving motives and his credentials and his authority were really non-existent. And to all of this, 2 Corinthians chapter 1 through chapter 13 addresses and shows that through all of this nonsense and through all of the struggles and through all the difficulties and weaknesses that God would prevail and that there was, when when we are weak, then we are strong. And that's kind of the um, overarching theme of the book. Now, back to our regularly scheduled program. Last week, we finished up in chapter 10. And chapter 10 had three quick ideas as he was dressing down his detractors. Uh, The first idea was, listen, we use spiritual weapons to deal with these kinds of people and these kinds of spiritual attacks. And he says, God has given us spiritual weapons to use and we shall prevail. And the second thing he said is, we do have authority And we will exercise that authority. And God gave me that authority to build you up. I'm not ashamed of having authority from God. And we exercise that even though it it causes some uh, ruffled feathers here and there. And the last thing he said is, and no, we don't compare ourselves among other pastors and ministries to find out how we're doing. We don't evaluate how we're doing by how the other guys are doing like the false teachers do. He says the only one that knows that they're commended by the Lord is if the Lord commends you. It's not the applause of men that they're looking for, like the false teachers. And so with that, he says uh, he's going to go on now in chapter 11, starting at verse 1, 1 through 6 here. So furthermore, he says, I hope you'll put up with a little of my foolishness. But you already are doing that. 
I'm jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promised you to one husband, to Christ, so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. But I'm afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Verse 4. For if someone comes to you and preaches a Jesus other than the Jesus we preached, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it easily enough. So we're off and running. Let's begin the chapter here. Note takers, really, uh, the first point is some sanctified sarcasm and uh, some masterful irony. Now, in the next couple chapters, he says, please put up with me. I'm going to do something really dumb, really stupid. I'm going to stoop to their stupidity. I'm going to beat them at their own game, but with a twist, a genius twist of the Holy Spirit. He's going to start boasting about humiliating and weak things in his life to bring glory and honor to God. But by doing that, he unravels them. It shows how ridiculous they are and uh, how uh, the Holy Spirit will prevail and that the truth will be made known and he will be exonerated. And so there's great irony here. And uh, so he's already said, so he introduces here, uh, up now, I'm going to start a list of boasting, right? But before he dives into it, which will be next week, because he starts the list of boasting at about verse 16. So we get to about verse 15, right? So before he dives in, he says, heads up, I'm going to start playing the game here. Even though it's not wise, it's not smart, it's valueless to boast about accomplishments and write up resumes and applaud one another. And he says, I'm great and all of that. I'm going to play the game a little bit for you, even though I'm going to sound like a fool. But, but then with the twist of they're not things that you would expect somebody to be boasting about. He starts boasting about his weaknesses. And he's, he's going to culminate that with saying, it's when I'm weak, the backdrop of human uh, Helplessness emphasizes the strength and the power and the glory of God. And in that, I delight. And so that's where we're headed. So before he gets to the actual boasting, he says, heads up, I hope you're going to put up with a little bit of my foolishness. You seem good at that right now these days. Anyway, I'm going to talk about that. So... He says, I hope you'll bear with uh, some of this folly. Sadly, you seem good at it there uh, because of what they're putting up with the false uh, teacher. So first he's saying, really, let me tell you what's driven me to the madness of 2 Corinthians, the whole thing. Because he's up in arms. There's been a painful letter. There's been a sorrowful visit. There's been a lot of energy expended here. And he says, let me explain myself. All this drama is for a reason. Number one, why, why am I so invested? I promise you, I'm so note takers, number one, I made a promise to Christ. I was kind of the midwife at your spiritual birth. 
and I'm entrusted by God for your new life to make sure that to oversee your life and make sure that everything goes accordingly until that great day when you see Christ. So Paul has used lots of metaphors to describe the Christian life and his own life. He, he describes himself as a master builder for the Lord, an ambassador representing Christ, a farmer who plants and harvests for the Lord. And now he's a matchmaker. In John chapter 3 and verse 29, we hear about the friend of the bridegroom. Well, he's drawn here from uh, a Jewish custom to where they had somebody called, uh, kind of, we have the word, it's from the Latin, it's internuncio. It's somebody who's a, a go between, between the groom and the bride's family. So the groom didn't really get involved in all of the prearrangements, but he had his best friend. And he handled all the money exchanging and the dowry and all of that. And his job was to kind of keep an eye on the fiance of his best friend. So he's, Paul is saying, that's sort of how he sees himself as a good friend to the groom, the Lord Jesus Christ, who's keeping watch over the bride-to-be, the Corinthians, until the groom comes to receive her unto himself. And now, I think anybody who's a Christian who's ever influenced anybody else to become a Christian, that we ought to have that same sense of parental care almost, that that person make it successfully and is an effective Christian. So Paul is saying, really, it seems to me you, the bride-to-be, are flirting with another dude. Verses three and four, check it out there. You know, um, somebody told me once <clears throat> that was attending the fellowship and I, I led him to the Lord. You know, it was an altar call kind of thing. And I'd been chatting with him uh, from week to week. And he tells me after he received the Lord that he's begun studying some really nice people, studying the Bible with some really nice people. And it was so miraculous. They ended up just showing up at his doorstep. Two of them. And I said, oh, no, 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 no. No, 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 that can't happen. I have a promise. I have a promise. I'm watching over you. I have to direct you away from that. And let me explain why. And this is what he's talking about. And this is what's exactly the Corinthian church is saying, hey, we've got some guys. They've got the Bible. They came down from Jerusalem. They knocked on our door. We let them in. You know, they, they're so Nice, Paul, they are so loving. All right, all of that nonsense. And Paul's, you know, his veins are busting out and they're like, what's your problem? And he's saying, what's your problem? Do you remember Genesis chapter three and a serpent and sweet talking? He says, I'm afraid that's what's happening here and now. The girl I introduce to the man of her dreams to whom she is currently engaged, is now flirting with some other man. Can this really be happening? A younger, more attractive, slick, smooth-talking newcomer comes in, and you're falling for a different Jesus. Look at your text. A different Jesus, a different spirit, and a different gospel. Exactly what's happening today. Exactly what's happening today. 
Two things we talked about in Romans chapter 1 on Sunday. Two things. The wrath of God, the impending judgment on all sin, Romans chapter 1, and the unequivocal moral condemnation of the behavior of homosexuality. Those two things have been removed from the current gospel. If you take away the thing, the wrath of God, if you take away the wrath of God from which we are saved, then we do not have anything from which to be saved. If you remove hell and you remove impending judgment, then we do not need a savior. We do not need the cross. We do not need the Bible because everything's okay. Then the whole Bible is full of nonsense if there's no hell and no impending judgment because that's the gospel. The gospel is predicated on we're all in a lot of trouble, but the good news is is that by faith, simply trusting God, you will escape the wrath of God. That's the good news of the gospel, amen? Amen. But today, it's being removed, and you still call yourself a Christian. And then the human sexuality thing. Jesus just made it clear. In the beginning, he made male and female. For this purpose, Jesus said, the purpose of making them male and female was that the two, male and the female, should be joined together as one, husband and wife. And that is the only context for sexual intimacy allowed, period. L, B, G, Q, R, X, B, M. With total love, total kindness, total respect to agree to disagree, but we keep the truth. We don't make up our own religion. And now there's thousands upon thousands of so-called professed Christians who have removed the wrath of God and hell and judgment and the need to repent and the moral guidelines of human sexuality with which God has said, those who live this way shall not inherit eternal life. That is a quote, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. But today, that's not your gospel. The false teachers came in, and even though we, I, I've been charged to keep you from that kind of cunning, it's out there. And I have lost people. We have lost people to the cunning of false teachers who come in with a hip, young, fine-sounding argument based not on the commands of God, but the traditions and reasoning of men. Be careful out there. Now, all I can do is rant and rave up here. I mean, I can't get inside your head and flip switches or your heart. That's the job of the Holy Spirit. And he tries And he will to your last breath. But he allows us the final say. Now, none of that was in my notes. So it's going to take me a while to find to where I left off. Let's just turn the page. But I do not think I am the least inferior to those super apostles That's what they kind of, the Corinthians called them, super apostles. Wow. 
They're like Power Rangers from Jesus. <laughs> I may not be a trained speaker, but I do have knowledge. We have made this perfectly clear to you in every way. Was it a sin for me to lower myself in order to elevate you by preaching the gospel of God to you free of charge? I robbed other churches by receiving support from them so as to serve you. And when I was with you and needed something, I was not a burden to anyone for the brothers who came from Philippi and Thessalonica, Macedonia. From the Philippians came and supplied what I needed. I have kept myself from being a burden to you in any way and will continue to do so. As surely as the truth of Christ is in me, Nobody in the regions of Achaia will stop this boasting of mine that's all southern Greece. Why? Because I don't love you? God knows I do. And I'll keep on doing what I'm doing in order to cut the ground from under those who want an opportunity to be considered equal with us in the things they boast about. So let's talk about this. He's defending himself still. Reasons to put up with him, uh, number one, was I made a promise. Number two is he's saying, now, I love you. That's what's compelling me right now. He says, if I'm out of my mind, it's for God and for you, and it's his love that constrains us or compels us. He said that last in chapter five. So here we get a rare glimpse here of the opponents. He calls them the super apostles. The word in the Greek is hyperman. Hyper, like, uh, like bigger than life, right? Hyper superman. Super apostles, that's really how they stylize themselves, right? And so here's a glimpse of the opponents of God, the opponents of truth, the opponents of the church, and yes, the opponents of uh, the apostle Paul, right? And so here's a a very nice way to emphasize the obnoxious bravado of these false teachers to call them, uh, quote unquote, super apostles. Now, really what's interesting here, a great little insight is who are they? What are they like? Well, number one, they're really good speakers. They're phenomenal speakers They're better speakers than the apostle Paul. He says, okay, about the so-called super apostles. Yeah, they speak better than I do. Right there. And I've already said this to you. The greatest speaker I've ever met in my entire life was at uh, one of those uh, timeshares. He was far better than any preacher I've ever heard. And for four hours, I endured. I won. Yes, it, it was the hardest fight for one measly dinner I've ever fought in my life. So listen, um, whether it's a smooth-talking salesman, a silver-tongued politician, a deceptive, eloquent, pathological liar, people have the gift of gab. 
He says, they got the gift of gab. Oh, they're trained in the seminaries and they come out and they wow you. And nothing was more important in Greece, in Greece, than an orator. And Paul just got up and spoke plainly. This is the gospel. Let me tell you about it. With fear and trembling, he said, he went to the Corinthians. With humility, he didn't get up there and say, okay, I'm going to come now with a, some sort of beautiful presentation. He got up there quaking, the apostle Paul. And he says, yeah, okay, they're trained. They're good speakers. I don't, I don't consider myself inferior to those super-duper disciples, even though I can't speak as eloquently as they. I love what one writer said. This is awesome. Truth doesn't always spring from the most eloquent tongue. Eloquence in the pulpit is a plus, but it's not a requirement. But eloquence of the highest order is a requirement to mislead those who are already on the right path and get them persuaded to discard the truth and exchange the truth of God for a lie and wander away into destruction. For that, my friend, you need a silver tongue and some real eloquence. And they had that. They had that. The false teachers of every age will win the award for the greatest speakers ever with their quote in the Bible, fine-sounding arguments, deceptive talking. They'll win the award. But the problem is where are you going to put the trophy when you end up in the abode of the dead in outer darkness? There's no place to hang your certificate. Look at me, I was the greatest speaker of all. Deceiving a whole bunch of people. Not very good. And so here's what he says. So, so yeah, I, I don't tickle your ears. I, I'm not as engaging. My transitions are lacking and I go way too long. <laughs> you're the one who keeps coming back. <laughs> you're, you're encouraging this. Okay, listen, you think I go long? The Apostle Paul almost killed someone by boring them to death. <laughs> Acts chapter 20 and verse 9. It says, as the Apostle Paul talked on and on, a young man who was sitting in a window on the third story fell us into a deep sleep and fell out, and they picked him up dead. He died of boredom. <laughs> but here's what the Apostle Paul can say. Yeah, maybe I do bore people a little bit, and I talk on and on. It says that. But you know what? Do they have the power to go outside and then raise him up from the dead? Well, neither did Paul, but Paul knew someone who could, and by Paul's faith, they gathered around him, and that man, that young man, who was picked up dead, was alive. They went back and had service, and it said, he spoke until sunrise. <laughs> and guess what? Nobody fell asleep the rest of the time. <laughs> Nobody fell asleep after that. <laughs> 
All right. So he says, I'm not eloquent, but I've got substance. I've got knowledge. And you guys totally know that. All right. So uh, moving on, the criticism now uh, is about t- <laughs> the criticism now, verses 7 through 12, is about not taking their money. About not taking their money. Paul refused to take offerings from Corinth. He just said, right from the start, I'm going to work. I'm going to have my little part-time job. And you guys don't have to support me. And they're offended. And the false teachers are using it. Let me explain it to you, okay? So the Corinthians are offended because Paul wouldn't accept their offerings. He already wrote to them their first letter in chapter 9 that it says, God has ordained that those who preach the gospel should make their living from the gospel. So he already said it's right and good and what God wants. And then he said, and he told them this. But in this case, special people, special circumstances, I feel a special kind of check in my spirit. I just feel like some opponents are going to come. They're going to accuse me of being uh, peddling the word of God for money. I want to pull the rug out from under them by not taking a shekel from you. Nothing. I'm not going to take a quarter. I'm going to support myself. And when I'm in need, the Philippians, they're always sending me offerings. I'll live on that. I'll pray God will send some money from Philippi. But I'm not taking a dime from you guys. I just can't do it. And he was right. Because they did accuse him. They're going to, okay, he's condemned if he does and condemned if he doesn't. Okay, because they accuse him of both things. And now, just when he says, okay, well, I never took a, do- a dollar from them. Here's what, uh, here's what happened. The, fo- the false teachers were raking it in. And now they're rubbing it in that Paul refused to do the same, right? Back in Greece in the first century, philosophers and teachers were paid big bucks to entertain, to teach, and to preach, They were paid big money. And the better you were, the more you demanded. And they loved to pay for it. And they would boast about who came in. I'm not talking about the churches. I'm talking about gatherings and the Areopagus and all of that that went down in Athens and all of that. So that's what was going on. So the speakers, the the guys were saying, listen, what... He's not accepting your money because he's not the real deal. We're the real deal. We'll tell you exactly how much we charge. And we're worth every penny of it because we're super apostles. So he says, listen, number one, was it a sin? Am I hearing this right? That you're you're saying you're not the real deal because you didn't take our money? Am I losing my mind here? So he says, was it a sin for me to elevate you means to lift you out of idolatry, you Corinthians, and to uh, lower myself, meaning taking a job, digging ditches, doing whatever it was he was doing. He says, and then you accuse me of not loving you? God knows I do love you, he says. Verse 8 there I accepted money from other churches that they couldn't really spare. Why? Because it was a special time, special circumstances, special people, special vulnerabilities, so that I preached the gospel freely. 
And for this, you're upset with me and you let them accuse me of not being the real deal because I don't take your money? Wow. So verse 11, he says, I intend to keep on loving you by keeping myself from being a burden to you. So let's finish up 13, 14, and 15. For such men as these who are throwing you into this kind of confusion, they're false apostles, deceitful workmen, masquerading as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. It is not surprising then if his servants masquerade as servants of righteousness. Their end will be what their actions deserve. And so, in answer to his criticism and before he's going to start boasting and playing their unwise game, uh, he's answering the criticism. So he said, verses 1 through 6, I made a promise. Uh, Number two was, I have a great love for you. And number three, he's saying, I have a duty to protect you from these guys. Verses 13 through 15 that you're looking at here. All right, so appearances can be uh, deceiving, he's saying here. Now, these heretics, really, he's saying, especially if you're in the devil's line of work, Appearances can be really deceiving. And whether you know you're in the devil's employ or not, I do believe that there are many false teachers today, this new Christian gospel, who have no idea that the evil one is using them to stumble God's people. They see it as a ministry of setting people free from archaic and old ideas that aren't working anymore. The ship, uh, that boat has sailed, they say. We need to get on and change some things about the Bible and, 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 and make some changes. And they think they're helping. They think they're enlightening you. Doesn't it feel better to to believe that there's no such thing as hell? Of course it feels better. Who wouldn't like to go to sleep thinking that nobody's there? But the Bible says there is somebody there and the smoke of their torment does not go out but rises day and night forever and ever. But you don't hear that anymore. And the reason I'm upset and the reason I'm animated is because I actually believe those words. And I believe that I know people who have crossed the line and are there, quite possibly. And I also know that there's a heaven. And there are people that I know that are there. And that this giant chess game for all of eternity is being played out right in front of me with people that are right here that I can talk to and make a difference and watch them either take a move closer to eternal loss or closer to heaven. And that is why some pastors seem a little bit fanatical because we actually believe that there's a hell to avoid and a great heaven to gain. Amen. But the job of these guys, the false apostles, deceitful workmen, masquerading as apostles of Christ, 
is the way that they operate. False apostles, verse 13, they got the title, they went online, they paid 1995, <laughs> and they are called reverend legally, and they can marry and bury and all of that, but they're, they're counterfeit. Uh, secondly, it says deceitful workmen. Well, if you're not the real thing, then how would you ply your trade? You would have to fake your way, like the people who are constantly and consistently being arrested for impersonating police officers all the time. People love to do that. They just don't want to go to police academy and get out student loans and do a lot of push-ups and pull-ups and things like that. Uh, they just want to go and uh, arrest people. <laughs> wow. And how about the doctors? All the time, you hear on the news. Somebody found in doctors' garbs with a stethoscope seeing patients, and he's a pretender. He's not well up here, but he worked at a hospital for a year. Deceitful workmen. And trust me, you drive by churches every day with a pretend pastor. Every day you pass their churches and every day there are people in there and they think they're hearing the truth and he's not even opening the Bible. And when he opens the Bible, he lies. He tells some lies. He doesn't tell them this. Well, if we're going to take a break for the summer, we might as well go out with a bang, people. <laughs> That's how I'm feeling, too. Exactly, to be honest with you. I'm like getting it all out now because I'm going to be all, you know. All right, so there's a disguise involved. So, and, and Paul says, of course you love them. Of course their teeth are straight and white and pearly, beautiful and clean, and they smell good and they look good, and oh, they're charming and funny. Of course you love them. Of course, oh, Paul, you should hear him. And when he, he has just cracks his voice and just the tear, you can see the tear, oh, Paul. Yeah, of course he's acting. That's what they do. That's what they do. And he says, are you surprised? Satan is the biggest masquerade artist in the world. So like father, like son. So of course you think they're going to come to you and say, you know, I I'm working for the evil one, and I want your soul. And, you know, you listen to me, I'll shipwreck your faith and destroy your marriage. Come on. Right? <laughs> no, no, no. He, and no, Satan's not going to let that happen. He's going to come to you in light and all of that. That's what he says. Listen, I'm wrapping up here, believe it or not. The other night, uh, Dave and I, Pastor Dave and I were on a bike ride. Now, people have asked me this before. Have you ever been around a demonized person in your life? And my answer for the last 40 years has been one time when I was a young man, when I was 20, I ran into somebody on the street in Santa Cruz. And it's a little bit of a story, but I, you know, I pretty much discerned, wow, something more than a human being's going on right here. Now, that number's gone to two as of two nights ago. We're riding our bikes, 
it, the sun had already set, unfortunately. <laughs> We're almost to our destination. We come up behind a hooded individual who's walking. And before we pass him, there is this snarling growl that absolutely, I have goosebumps now thinking about it. We passed him, but it started before we passed him. And it kind of, kind of, I can only explain it this way. It had intentionality in the voice and in the tone. It was directed. That's how it felt. That it was aware. And here's the part that blows my mind is, is that I was aware before the sound was made that something was up. So I'm just riding my bike and I got that kind of feeling like, whoa, what's up? And then the growl and this sound. And we both looked at each other and said the same thing to each other at the same time. That was not human. That's what we said. Now, after praying in the spirit the whole rest of the way and riding much faster than I ever thought I could, <laughs> I started thinking, wow, it's real. It's out there. The evil one, it's real. I, I mean, I'm a pastor. But it dawned on me like, wow, that world's out there. I mean, he, the evil one is out there in the world. And I was started to think, how close is he? I, I mean, around that, I don't know. If I knew that that presence was around me and trying to tempt me when I'm playing around in my head with attitudes and all kinds of things, if I knew that, surely, oh, if you would hear that, I promise you, I guarantee you, if that reality was pressed into you, that that is what's behind the temptation to sin. We would sin less and obey more. But the problem is, it comes to us in light. It comes to us, I've got a picture of light, don't I? Hands, yes. This is how it comes to you. She's really cute and your wife hasn't been paying attention to you and she noticed that you've been working out and she's interested in the same things as you and what you keep running into her for, it's a sign. And it's just conversation. Come on, not a big deal. You can ask forgiveness, just one time. Or whatever it is. It looked good. It looked good for wisdom. It always comes to you as this is convenient. This will be good for you. This will be helpful. This is what you need. This is what you're not getting. And there's the reasoning. It never comes to you as what it is. Death. Poison. This is going to make your children without a father, except for every other week. Just think. If you saw this picture, you might think, maybe not this time. Maybe no. 
How about quoting a scripture? No temptation has seized you except that which is common to everybody in the world. And God is faithful with the temptation to provide a way of escape that you will not be tempted beyond what you are able. Why don't you quote that one from the Corinthians? First letter, chapter 10, verse 13. If we see it for what it is and not the disguise, you'll never start down the path, even the stupid little nonsense sins of losing your temper and letting your thoughts go. It always starts, and that's part of the deception is this. Oh, it's just a little attitude. It's just a little thing. Just go down to take from A to B. You can always get back to A. And from B to C, because you can always jump back to B to A, and then to D, and then to E, and then to F, and then you wake up and you're at X, and you say, how did that happen? It's because you saw the last picture, please. He was really into the sermon. (laughs) You saw this. You didn't see the gun. Do you value your life? Do you value the reward that is waiting for you? Do do you value your marriage? Do you value your kids? (laughs) Then see past this. Because it's a disguise. Let's pray. Father God, we just thank you for your love. Thank you for talking to us tonight, Lord. (laughs) Thank you for talking to me. Thank you for talking to your church, your people. Now we pray for the grace to be able to put into practice these words and to be careful how we live our lives. Not to be in fear or paranoid, but to be wise and discerning. In the joy of the Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. You have been listening to The Rock Podcast. Our regular services are held on Wednesday nights at 6.30 and Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you would like to learn more, please visit our website at cctherock.org.